Let's continue in the Gospel of John. As we continue in the Gospel of John, we are worshiping. We are still in worship. We're going to be looking at John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. Jesus, in this particular text, is left with the eleven. Judas is gone. The betrayer is gone. And he tells his disciples that now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the precise time that God will be glorified in Christ. Perfect time was God's perfect time. He was just about to demonstrate his supreme love for his own by way of the cross. And now he leaves them with a single command. Love one another just as I have loved you. Christ going to the cross was going to pave the way for the Holy Spirit to come and fill them and put his love in their hearts. They would now be able to have this deep love for each other. And the result, besides God being glorified, would be that the world would see the real followers, the real disciples of Jesus Christ. And this commandment has been reverberating through the corridors of time. You and I, and every true believer in Christ, still hear Jesus say, love one another just as I have loved you. And by the way, we still have the same Holy Spirit that the first century disciples had in helping them love each other. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow, till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, let your spirit... Illuminate our minds and hearts to know, understand, and obey your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a king and his kingdom. And this kingdom was a beautiful place to live, for it had rolling hills, lush greenery, cultivated fields, streams, lakes, and rivers running through it. The farmer had an abundance of produce season after season. As a matter of fact, no matter what occupation anyone had, it was extremely prosperous. It was a place anyone would want to live and raise a family. However, there was a problem, a big problem. The people of this kingdom, in spite of beautiful, rich land, 
were not getting along at all. For example, there was a man who owned a wheat field, and another man who trespassed on his field to save him time. Excuse me, to save his save time on his way to this town market. So the owner saw him on his property and ran towards him, throwing stones at him and yelling, "Get off my property now! You're trespassing!" And there was another man who had his fence one foot over the property line onto his neighbor's field. When the neighbor suspected that it was on his property, he hired a land surveyor who measured and told him that indeed the fence was on his property by one foot. Well, the man confronted his neighbor and told him that he had two days to get his fence off his property. And if it wasn't done in two days, he would have the officials come and tear it down. And then there was his family who owned a pet dog whom they loved. But the dog got sick and at night began to howl and bark because of the pain. And the next day the neighbor came to the house, pounding on their door. When the man of the house opened the door, the neighbor, shaking his fist in his face, said, If you don't keep that door quiet, I will take my bow and arrow and pierce it the next time I see it out in your field. That door kept me and my family up half the night. And there were many other stories like this going on in this kingdom. Well, one day, a man was speaking harsh words about the king, and also was caught stealing a sheep from a neighbor was brought in by the king's guards and made to bow down before the king. And when the man's accuser stated the charges against him, the king said to him, Do you have anything to say for yourself? The man was so scared and he began to cry and begged the king for mercy. The king stood up from his throne and began to pace the floor. This went on for a few minutes. And the people were wondering what was taking him so long to sentence him to death. For not only did he steal sheep, but worse, he blasphemed the king. And after a few minutes, the king bowed down and touched the man's head. For the man was bowed down to the floor and couldn't even lift up his eyes to the king because of the shame and remorse he felt. The king finally spoke. And to the accuser's amazement, the king said, Go your way, you're free. The people thought to themselves, How could the king let this thief, and and worse yet, a blasphemer, go free? Then the king said to the man whose sheep were stolen, You will have four sheep, the best of my own personal flock, tomorrow in your field. The man said, But sire, he only took one sheep. The king said, Go your way and enjoy your sheep. But the people still thought, How could the king set him free after he spoke so harshly about him? The king knew what they were thinking. So he said to them, And I have pardoned him for the blasphemous words he spoke about me. The people were that were there were astounded as they thought no one had ever pardoned for speaking against the king. Well, the word of this spread throughout the kingdom. And the the people began talking about what had happened. But something began to change in the kingdom. The people began to change. As a matter of fact, the man who had, had tried to cut across someone else's field was going to the market again. But this time he said to himself, I better take a long, the long way this time and not arouse the anger of the owner by cutting through his field. Well, the owner of the field saw him and ran over to him and said, Friend, use my field as a shortcut for your journey to the marketplace. And the man whose fence was a foot over onto his neighbor's field was about to hire men to tear it down when all of a sudden there was a knock on his door and it was his neighbor who threatened him and said to him, Friend, don't move your fence. And the foot that was on my property is now yours. Here are the new surveyor papers stating it is your property. Also, the people who had the dog that was sick woke up early in the morning to a knock on the door. 
It was the man who complained and threatened them about their barking sick dog. Reluctantly, they invited him and the person he was within. And the man proceeded to say, I'm sorry about my complaining and threats I made to you about your dog. I had no right to do that. Here, I brought my friend who was an expert on treating sick animals. The man treated their dog and he recovered. The, ma- the family rejoiced that their dog was better. And there were many other stories like this going on into the kingdom, in this kingdom. But what happened to the people of this kingdom? Why such a dramatic change? The people witnessed something they never saw before. It was the king demonstrating supreme love. Oh, there were kings before this one, but never a king who was so kind. They wanted to imitate their king. And so they did, and it changed the whole kingdom. The first king demonstrated love, and they followed. And the king and the subjects of his kingdom lived happily ever after. Now you might think, nice fairy tale. And I would have to agree, with a nice fairy tale. However, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, suffered and died for our sins, and we were pardoned, he demonstrated supreme love. This was no fairy tale. This is reality. And now Jesus exhorts us to do the same, to love each other. As the people in this fictitious story I just read wanted to love the way their king loved, Christians are called to love the way their king loves. Here's my proposition to you tonight. It is now possible for us to love each other because Christ first loved us. Three points I want to bring to you through this text. First one, love through the cross brought glory to Christ and his Father. Second point, love for each other shows the world we belong to God. And third point, love never boasts. The last two times I spoke, we looked at Jesus humbling himself, stooping down, washing his disciples' feet. And not only his disciples' feet, but even the one he knew would betray him. This was around the Passover meal, and now Judas is finally gone. And so, the new community of believers is cleansed, and Jesus is left with the eleven to give them his final instructions regarding life after his departure. In the Old Testament, dying leaders like Moses and Elijah gave farewell discourses before their departure. For example... Moses' farewell discourse in Deuteronomy chapters 31 to 34, Moses identified as his successor, and he gives teaching that, they must, that must be recorded in a final blessing. And in Jesus' farewell discourse, the same elements appear of a Jewish farewell. And at this point, the cross is only hours away, and Jesus now speaks of his glory. Point one, love through the cross brought glory to Christ and his Father. Our sacrificial love towards one another, if you don't know this, brings glory to God. And let's look at three things that Jesus brings to their attention that speaks of his his and his Father's glory. First one is the way of glory by death. Verse 31, the first half of it again. When Jesus had gone out, Jesus said... Now is the Son of Man glorified. 
The expression of Son of Man is used by the prophet Daniel and is associated with glory. And in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Son of Man is frequently associated with suffering. Well, John brings these two together. It's the glorification of the Son. The suffering Son of Man is now going to be glorified. And Jesus' greatest humiliation, the cross, actually brought him glory. How? Number one, he redeemed us through the cross. Colossians 2.14 says, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It says, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Redeeming us through the cross brought him glory. Romans 3.25 tells us, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Number two, the cross brought glory to Jesus because it destroyed the power of sin. Romans 6.6 tells us that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And at times in weakness, we may sin, but sin does not master us anymore. Before conversion it did. But as regenerated people of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of sin in our lives has been broken. And we say glory to you, Heavenly Father, and the Lord Jesus for freeing us from this power of sin. Number three, the cross brought glory to Christ by rendering Satan's reign and power powerless. Jesus, his death, stripped the devil of his rule and power. 1 John 3.8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in Acts 3, verses 13 through 15, Peter was speaking to the Jews who crucified Jesus and said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. God glorified Jesus on the cross. But also, God the Father was glorified through Jesus. Verse 31, the second half, it says, And God is glorified in Him, meaning in Jesus. Again, how? Well, Christ's death put on display God's power, God's justice, God's holiness, God's faithfulness, and God's love. God's death put on display God's power by raising him from the dead. Christ's death put on display God's justice, punishing sin in the body of Christ. Amazing that God never violated his justice. Never. We deserve to be thrown into hell forever because of our sin, which separates us from God. God had to punish sin. He could not just let us slide, otherwise he would have violated his own justice. So he punished Jesus instead of us, and never violated his own justice. Christ, God the Father, is glorified in Christ through never violating his own justice. Christ's death put on display God's holiness. God was glorified through Christ's death because his holiness was on display. He is pure and utterly holy and is separate from sin. And on the cross it displayed his deep hatred for sin. And that's why 
He turned away and couldn't look at Jesus. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God's hatred for sin. And Christ's death put on display God's faithfulness. It came to pass that was foretold in the Old Testament that Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of the world. It was proclaimed since Genesis 3.15 that a Savior was coming to die. God the Father was displayed His holiness, His, His glory, through His faithfulness through Jesus. And Christ's death on the cross put on display God's love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God was glorified through His Son's death. The way of glory was not only by death and humiliation, which I just spoke about, but by Christ's exaltation. The way to glory by exaltation. Verse 32. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now this looks beyond the cross, ahead to the resurrection and ascension, which would happen immediately. And that's why Jesus said God will also glorify Him in himself and glorify him at once and this is why Jesus longed for when he said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 5 and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed Jesus took the lowest seat and was exalted to the highest position and Paul understood that as he told Philippians Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. That's the lowest. That is the lowest. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the highest. So Jesus went from the lowest to the highest. God has revealed his glory in Jesus. When we glorify Jesus, guess what? We are glorifying the Father. You cannot separate the two. John 5.23 That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The way of glory meant leaving for a time. Little children, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going... You cannot come. First thing is Jesus calls them little children. Which only occurs here in John. But seven times in 1 John. It's a very endearing term. Jesus is adopting the role of the head of a household. And calls his disciple his children. And as a loving father would be gentle with his children. In breaking the news to them that he has, he's going to be going away on a long business trip. Jesus is tender and gentle with his disciples. But in order for Jesus to be glorified, he had to die, rise again, and ascend back to the Father. Which meant he had to leave them. They would not be able to go where he was going. And if you remember back in John 7, 34 and John 8, 21, he told the faithful Jews basically the same thing. Except there was a difference. The difference between the unbelieving Jews and his disciples was the unbelieving Jews were never going to be able to see him again because they were going to die in their sins. Whereas Jesus' disciples 
would see him again, as he told Peter in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Because as Dr. Carson says, they are told he is going to prepare a place for them. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. They are told, they are not told that they will die in their sins. John 8, 21. Rather, because he lives, they too will live. John 14, 19. The Jews were never going to see Jesus again, the unbelieving Jews, because they were going to die in their sins and spend eternity apart from Christ in hell. But his own disciples were going to see him again because Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. So it was just a matter of time before the disciples would be reunited with their Savior. But this is the way it had to happen. The cross, resurrection, and ascension, which would bring glory to both the Father and the Son. But he had to leave for a time. Is this important to us as believers? Is it important to be concerned with the glory of God? A thousand times, yes. We should be preoccupied with the glory of God. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians, Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The very first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, says, what is the, chief end of, uh, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Jesus Christ's obedience unto death glorified the Father. It was out of love for the Father and the Father's love for us that Jesus died on the cross and brought great glory to God. And everything we do, whether we suffer, whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we play golf, whether we fish, whether we go to baseball games, whether we teach, whether we're on our job, whatever we do, you fill in the blank. We are to do for the glory of God and to do it with God in mind. So by way of application of point one, one of the greatest ways we can bring glory to God is our sacrificial love towards one another. Is God not pleased when you and I genuinely care about each other and love each other? Is God not heart filled with joy when we love and care for each other? Does it not bring Him glory? Or do we grieve God's heart when we bicker and fight and backbite each other? I remember when I, and my wife will remember this, we just finished a Bible study in our home. We had a wonderful Bible study in our home. Our home was always, for some reason, crowded, and we had just a great time there. It was, we, we met every two weeks. And I believe I was teaching on forgiveness at, at this particular point. I, I don't remember exactly. It was many, many, many years ago. And no sooner when I said amen, I looked in my kitchen, I saw two people going at it. I mean, man, they were really going at it. And I said to myself, did they not hear what I just said? Make no mistake about this. If we bicker and fight, God's heart is grieved. If we genuinely love each other, God is glorified. doesn't mean love says you don't confront. It does not mean that. But we do it in a respectful way. Second point. Love for each other shows the world we belong to God. Our sacrificial love towards one another does get people's attention. Make no mistake about it. Verses 34 and 35. 
A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Was this a new command? I mean, the Old Testament commanded love. Leviticus 19.18 You shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So what was new? What was new about what Jesus said about love? It was new because it was a much higher standard of love. Love one another just as Jesus. I have loved you. The Jews or anyone else for that matter cannot love the way Jesus loves. Love for the Jews and even for us today is many times based on emotions or condition. If someone is worthy of love, we love them. And once again, God said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. What makes it new is the new covenant, which Jesus established through his death. The new covenant comes with power and the Holy Spirit that now fills every true believer their hearts and enables us to love the way Jesus loves. That's what's new. It's also a reflection of the love between the Father and the Son. And that's why I believe it's new. So new is now defined not by emotion or condition, but by an act of our wills. Love is now defined by laying down our lives for each other. Love is now defined by sacrificing for each other. Love is now defined by 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. It's now defined like this. It's patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the new order of love Jesus was establishing through his sacrificial death. This is now the norm for the church. This is now the norm for you and me. Do you want to know if you genuinely have this kind of love? You really can't tell if you're loving back those who love you, can you? No. Even sinners do that. If you really, and I really want to know, if we are loving the way Jesus loved, reach out in reconciliation. Reach out in love and forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Jesus did. Love one another as I have loved you. Can we hold the title Christian and actually say, I love God and hate our brother or sister? I won't answer that question, but I'm going to let the scripture answer that. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, and emphasis is mine, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In 1 John, the 4th chapter, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, this is serious stuff. He is a liar. This is not me saying this. This is John, the apostle. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, notice the word, 
must also love his brother. Do we get the idea? A Christian who lives in hatred and claims to know and love Jesus Christ is a Christian in name only. It's called a nominal Christian. Yes, but John, do you know how hard it is to love certain people? I do. I do. But the word of God still says to all of us, love one another as I have loved you. And you know why it's not impossible and really not hard? Because if we're true believers, God's love was shed abroad in our hearts and he has empowered us to love each other by his Holy Spirit. Two scriptures, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the second one is Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is the first one on the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, but the first one leading the way is love. How do we accomplish this? By walking by the Spirit. In other words, submit to the Spirit's control. Respond to the simple commands of Scripture. Listen, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, then as John the beloved apostle says, his commands are not burdensome. By the way, John also tells us in 1 John, the 3rd chapter, the 23rd verse, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Now notice this, one command, believe in Christ and love each other. In other words, the two are inseparable. You believe in Christ, you love one another. You don't believe in Christ, you don't love one another. If you believe in Christ, you're going to love one another. It's one command. And when this occurs and is manifested in our lives, Jesus says that all people will know we are his disciples. And when we truly and biblically love each other as Jesus commanded us, it becomes a convincing argument for the gospel, as Dr. Kent Hughes says. It's a convincing argument for the gospel when we learn to love each other. To love one another as Christ has loved us is what Francis Schaeffer called the mark of the Christian. This is what separates us from the world. Godly love towards one another. Do we really think people will listen to the gospel when we are fighting and backbiting with each other? Again, our sacrificial love towards one another gets people's attention. In his book, The Mark of a Christian by Francis Shaver, he writes this, What then shall we conclude but that as the Samaritan loved the wounded man, we as Christians are called upon to love all men as neighbors, loving them as ourselves. Second, that we are to love all true Christians, brothers, Christian brothers in a way that the world may observe. This means showing love to our brother in the midst of our differences, great or small. Loving our brothers when it costs us something. Loving them even under times of tremendous emotional tension. Loving them in a way the world can see. In short, we are to practice and exhibit the holiness of God and the love of God. For without this, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. 
I love Francis Schaeffer. Do we want the world to believe we are disciples of Jesus Christ? Let's genuinely and sacrificially love one another. So the first point, love through the cross book. Glory to Christ and His Father. The second, love for each other shows the world we belong to God. And the third and final point, love never boasts. Our sacrificial love towards one another doesn't boast. Verse 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. See, Peter was not satisfied with what Jesus said. Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterward. Though impetuous Peter wanted to go now with Jesus. And as you follow Peter's life, he was impetuous from day one until the Holy Spirit filled him. <laughs> he and the rest of the disciples were unwilling to accept the fact that Jesus had to leave them for a time. And we must admit one thing to Peter's credit. He was consistent. But we also must admit another thing. Jesus was consistent, wasn't he? Very patient. And when we get to chapter 14 the next time, we will see that it was expedient for Jesus to leave and to prepare a place for Peter and the rest of his disciples and every believer. However, Peter did not understand and begins to boast that he will lay down his life for Jesus. You see, Peter underestimated Christ's love for him, and he overestimated his loyalty for Jesus. Underestimated Christ's love in that Jesus said, you will follow me afterward. Peter, as well as the rest, did not understand that Jesus was going to suffer. He was going to die. He was going to rise again. He was going to send the Holy Spirit. He was going to prepare a place for them. And finally, after a short period of time of suffering on this earth, take them to heaven forever. They didn't understand that kind of love. Peter and the rest underestimated Christ's love for them. But Peter also overestimated his loyalty by thoughtlessly boasting, Oh, Jesus, I will lay my life down for you. By the way, Peter was the spokesman for the rest because in Mark chapter 14, verse 31, they all said the same thing. So let's not be too hard on Peter. At least Peter admitted it. <laughs> Ironically, it wasn't Peter laying down his life. It was Jesus laying down his life for them. Peter was devoted to Jesus, but it was at best a confused devotion. Dr. Carson said, sadly, good intentions in a secure room, he's talking about the Passover, when he was in at, with them at the Last Supper, good intentions in a secure room after, after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point in his pilgrimage, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. And we saw that happen to Peter. And now Jesus brings Peter into reality. Will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Will you really? Truly, truly. Listen up, Peter. Listen up. You know I'm the truth and I don't lie. The rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This must have hit Peter in the face like a stinging snowball. We don't hear from Peter again until chapter 18. That silenced him. 
And we know from Scripture that's exactly what happened, what Jesus predicted. Peter indeed denied Jesus not once, not twice, not three to- but three times, and then the rooster crowed. Peter was boastful. Peter was proud. Peter was arrogant. Peter was short-sighted. Peter was outspoken, like some of us, but was loved by Christ. Jesus began a good work in Peter, and he was going to complete it. His love for him far outweighed Peter's failures. That brings comfort to my heart. I don't know about you, but I could sit and look at my failures all day long. And and the only hope I have is, first of all, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And the second is, Jesus, you started the good work in me. My faith is you're going to complete it. And we know that Jesus did restore Peter. And after Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he became the leader in the early church. He preached the gospel authoritatively and he wrote two epistles. And we know from history that Peter did die sacrificially and gave his life for Christ. And he said, well history tells us, he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord died. And they crucified him upside down. So Peter learned. He learned the love of Christ and said to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22-23. This is Peter now. The one who denied him three times. He says to his readers, he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. You see, the power of God changed Peter and his boasting ceased. Do you and I make promises to God we can't keep? I'll die for you, Jesus. Yet, we can barely live for him. Let's try living for him first before we start telling God, I'm going to die for you. Let's live for him first. In our zeal, we can all make promises. I know I have. But God knows the extent of our commitment. In Romans 12.3, Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We should be honest in our assessment, our estimation of ourselves. Instead of bragging, we need to show our commitment step by step as we grow in our knowledge of God's word and in our faith. The only boasting we should ever, ever do is boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians one thirty one, And in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul told the Galatian church. Let's conclude. If we want to show the world we are truly his disciples, if we want to give them a convincing gospel, then we must love each other the same way Christ loved us. This is not a suggestion, but it's a loving command. Because our debt, has been paid by the Lord. One is destined to remain. Love one another. I want to end with this song by a group called Glad. Glad was a group in the 1980s, one of my favorite groups. I had the privilege of meeting them and knowing them. And they were one of the great groups of the 1980s. They, saw, they sang songs that would really pierce and touch the heart. And they, they did a lot, a lot of times they were doing contemporary music, but there was times they did a cappella. This is one of the a cappella songs. I think it was from the a cappella project. 
and it's called Love One Another. So if we could play that song. And this really, um, really sums up the message today on what it's all about. Love one another. Listen to the words. Love one another. Lord, to you alone are all glory, honor, and praise that belong to you. And we humbly give it to you, Lord. While we were yet sinners, you, our great and awesome God, died for us. And if that was not enough, God, you poured out your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And you left us with the single command that we believe in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as you've commanded us. Dear God, help us to accomplish this. Not by our power or strength, but by the power of your indwelling spirit. Help us today to love others with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.